You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. Learn more at cbmw.org. The Danvers Statement summarizes the need for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and serves as an overview of our core beliefs. This statement was prepared by several evangelical leaders at a CBMW meeting in Danvers, Massachusetts in December of 1987. And in this podcast series, we're walking through the Danvers Statement line by line as we discuss the statement's biblical basis and ethical implications. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. And my name is Denny Burke. I'm the president of CPMW. This is the first episode in what we hope to make as a series on the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, But before we get into the substance of the statement, we thought it'd be a good idea to kind of take a step back and look at what was the cause uh, behind the generation of the statement, maybe some of the history of CBMW, and for that, there's no better person to do that than Denny Burke, president of CBMW. Well, I don't know if I'm the best person to do it. <laughs> Some of the people we're going to be talking about probably uh, could do it a lot better than I can. Uh, but I do think it's important for us to discuss this because um, the Danvers statement didn't come out of a vacuum. It came at a certain historical point at which it was needed. And um, where there were a group of evangelicals who came together who realized, look, there's a a need in the evangelical church to proclaim clearly what the Bible says about manhood, womanhood, marriage, and to explain uh, the the different callings that God puts on the lives of men and women, especially within the church and the home. So that was their aim in coming together. But what what happened was, is that back in January of 1987, so we're 30-some-odd years ago, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, S. Lewis Johnson— Uh, a scholar named Susan Foe, Wayne House, and a handful of others. They met at Dallas Theological Seminary, and then they met in the home of Wayne House to strategize a biblical response to what they perceived to be a rising tide of feminism within evangelicalism. And probably um, one of the precipitating events that happened back in the early 80s that led to this sense that was growing among them uh, was that there There was an annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society. So it was, I forgot the exact year. It was in the early 80s. It may have been like 83, 84, or so, somewhere in there, where they did um, presentations on the issues that we're talking about now, what we now call complementarianism and egalitarianism, before those terms were um, were coined, at least before complementarianism was coined. And they had um, a lot of scholars there speaking to the issue, and on the on the program you had uh, several scholars speaking in favor of what we would now identify as the egalitarian view, and then just one person, uh, Wayne Grudem, speaking in term in terms in, in defense of what we would now call the complementarian view, and that really made Wayne. Uh, it gave Wayne pause. He, he thought this doesn't really represent the mainstream. What's on the platform in these presentation presentations doesn't represent the mainstream of what evangelicals uh, believe about manhood and womanhood. And so that seed eventually grew into um, these meetings that went that happened in Dallas, Texas, in nineteen eighty seven. And so they were trying to address what they perceived as a this growing 
tide of, of feminism within evangelicalism, and they saw it reflected to a certain extent uh, within the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society at that time. And so what their their aim was when they came together in Dallas was to draft a theological statement of principles for a new organization that they were hoping to start. And Grudem at the time was living in Chicago, and as he was on the plane from Chicago to Dallas, he just began to outline an, a, an initial set of points that they were hoping to include in a statement of principles that hadn't been completed yet. And echoes of what he wrote down in bullet points can be heard in the actual final draft of what became the Danvers statement, but they were just bullet points as he was riding on the plane uh, coming down to Dallas. And he wrote things like this, and I, I had access to his handwritten notes on this, but he said, uh, he just wrote, uh, number one, Adam and Eve equally in God's image. Number two, Adam's headship in family and human race established by God before fall, not a result of sin. Number three, the fall introduced strain in relationships, sin, tendency for women to try to usurp authority over men, tendency for men to try to rule harshly and selfishly. So those are three of the bullet points that he had written down before he even came to Dallas. And um, Grudem has written about this whole process, and he has explained that his outline comprised the what were the bare bones of the Danvers Statement. But eventually, uh, when they all met together, John Piper penned an initial draft based on those bullet points that Grudem had penned uh, on the way down to the meeting. And so the group came together that I mentioned before, and they modified and they added to uh, what Piper and Grudem had come up with. And that was the, like like the first draft that they came up with uh, early in 1987. Then late in 1987, in December, they met again. This time with several other participants, now including Bill Mounts, Lane Dennis, Kent Hughes, Gleason Archer, Tom Edgar, Ken Sarles, and they met in Danvers, Massachusetts to try to finalize uh, this rough draft into a statement that would be uh, what, what they intended to be their expression of principles on manhood and womanhood. And again, Piper served as the primary drafter of that document at the second meeting, and their work eventually became known as what we now call the Danvers Statement. And it's called the Danvers Statement just because they were meeting in Danvers, Massachusetts when they finished the statement. And it was a statement intended to summarize in broad sweep the Bible's teaching about male and female roles within the church and in the home. Now, about a year after the Danvers Statement was published to the world, so in 1988, the group um, a group of them came back together and they coined the term complementarian as a label for their position. So before this time, so you had the Danvers statement for nearly a year, but there wasn't a name for it. You know, um, it, it, they weren't going to just call it the Danvers statement as that, that's not a, the, that's not a way to describe the theological position. And the people that follow it as the, the Danvers, uh, Danverites or something. No, that that's not that's not how how it is. You know, we have a doctrine of the Trinity, but it was hammered out at Nicaea, and you know, here similarly, obviously, this isn't a primary issue like Trinitarianism. I can already right. hear people saying, "Oh, he's comparing this to the Trinity." No, <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm just saying that there is a long history in the Christian Church of naming theological um, uh, statements after the places where they were published. 
So you can think of similar to the Nashville statement. In fact, as you were going through that history, it reminded me a little bit of what we did in more recent history in 2017 with an initial draft and then some feedback and then meeting in Nashville to kind of finalize that document uh, 30 years after, after Danvers and confession, Denny here. Uh, so I was born in 1986. So I was, I was one year old <laughs> in, during the events that you're talking about here. And as you're talking about, you know, what was going on at ETS, that's not my experience currently today. You know, I'm a member of ETS. I go there every year, present, participate in the business. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to me to hear just the difference between what the society was like back in 87 and then kind of what it's like today. And for us, maybe more young guns to, to realize that the history wasn't always, or, or the way the society is today has not always been. Yeah. I mean, I think that when people think about the evangelical theological society, it's always been a mixture of, well, I, I can't say always. It started back in the 1940s. I, I'm assuming back in the 1940s, there were probably far fewer egalitarians then than there are now. But as it's over the course of the 20th century, it certainly developed into a society that contained a, a good number of complementarians and egalitarians uh, within the within its ranks. And those were the people who were writing the books, who were producing the literature that would sort of define the the conversation. And that's why, you know, it became the the matrix for the formation of our organization, which was um, you know, very much tied to to things and developments that were happening at the Evangelical Theological Society. But th- it was never our organization was never meant to be just merely a think tank. Um, we we were formed um, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood to promote this view, not just in uh, scholarship, although we we do that, but also just at the popular level. So it was so 1987 is when the Danvers Statement came along. And uh, we named the statement, they named the statement after the place where they were meeting, just like the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and, you know, a ton of other um, uh, uh, doctrinal statements. But they na- they did that in 1987. And um, about a year after that, as I mentioned, they came up with a term for the position and they um, had a long discussions about how to describe this. They thought about maybe we should call it the traditional view or traditionalism. And they didn't like that that term because they wanted the Bible to interrogate tradition. And there are certain human traditions and stereotypings that aren't biblical and you don't want to baptize all of those. And they, they didn't want a, a label that, um, you know, sort of signaled that they, they were just holding on to tradition for tradition's sake and weren't being able to be reformed by the Bible. So they kind of rejected that as a phrase. Then they, um, uh, they, they thought about uh, the term uh, hierarchicalism, um, some, some sort of play on hierarchy to emphasize headship, but they didn't like that either. And the reason was because um, for them, complementarianism was more than hierarchy. It was never just about who's in charge. It was about the way that God had created male and female to be complements to one another and John Piper talks about in recovering on biblical manhood, recovering biblical manhood and womanhood, the the book that eventually came out, that the the term complementarian is deeply rooted in the Hebrew of Genesis chapter two, 
So mm-hmm. some of our listeners may be familiar with that prepositional phrase connecto, which means, you know, or it says that um, Eve is a helper corresponding to Adam. And it's it that corresponding to phrase is is coming from connecto. And but it it signals the fact that they are not only um complementary to one any to one another biologically in terms of their reproductive capacity, but also in the way that they would relate to one another. So a complement is is someone who completes the other, right? And so there's a reproductive completion that's going on there, but there's a relational social right. completion that that is going on there. And so they they decided on complementarianism because they thought that it would emphasize both um, the fact that they're created equally in the image of God, and that but that they're different, right? So there's a sameness and there's a difference that that's there that they thought complementarianism would would bring forth. Uh, and it seems years, like that term that term itself uh, reflects the organization of the Danvers statements we're going to get into in in later uh, episodes, but the sameness and the equality is fronted just as it is in Genesis one, um, the establishment of the image of God, that being which, you know, grounds equality. And then we emphasize the the differences with the equality established where if it was hierarchicalism or something like that, there's sort of an emphasis immediately on difference and authority. That's why I love the term complementarian. Yeah. And in fact, you know, in years after that, you had different people suggest different labels for the position. Um, People, uh, well, even at the beginning, people had suggested, what about the term patriarchy? And even later, after long after the formation of CBMW and the Danvers Statement, you had people coming along, especially in the early 2000s, um, saying, why don't we call it, you know, biblical patriarchy or something like that? And a lot of people have, a lot of complementarians from time to time, you'll hear, even if they're not technically complementarians, maybe they have moved on to different positions on certain things, but you have heard people use the term patriarchy. Um, I haven't favored that term simply because um, patriarch is a biblical term, but patriarchy is really the coinage of uh, 20th century feminists, especially Kate Millett. And patriarchy and feminist coinage specifically refers to something abusive and misogynistic. And so um, it, it's hard to re I'm not saying that people can't reclaim that word and try to give it their new definition, but it's original coinage was something having to do with, um, you know, something that's misogynistic and, and, and abusive in fact. So there's so much pro- um, just baggage on that term because of feminist propaganda that's happened in the latter part of the 20th century until now. So patriarchy has never been a real unifying term either, for the position, uh, some years ago, Dan Block suggested the term patricentism, centrism, patricentrism, oh. which uh, yeah, which means focused around the father. That that never caught on. Um, so, really, I don't think anybody's come up with a better way to describe the theological proposition contained in Danvers than the term complementarianism. And so, I like it and still use it now. The that's that's how this came about. So you have to understand the theological position existed before the term did. Okay, now it's not like the word complement never was used before, but the term complementarianism was uh, a term that was just meant to summarize the theological proposition contained in Danvers. 
So after they, you know, they had this statement in 1988 and they had the term complementarian as a, as a way to just summarize what they said in Danvers. And um, um, after they coined this term, it says that they met in the main dining room of the Lyle Hilton and they held a press conference and uh, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Bruce Waltke, Wayne House, Kent Hughes, a handful of others were all there for the 1988 meeting where the term complementarian emerged. Um, and so th that's where all of that happened. And when they announced this, um, it's uh, Wayne Grudem says that for like two years, they were meeting in secret. And then they finally went public and said, we're going to form a public group and it's going to be, you know, an, an official organization. And that's in CBMW was founded sort of out of those those meetings. So they had a statement of principles first, the Danvers statement, which is a theological statement. And then they came up with uh, the organization that was based on the theological statement. And it was a council of people who came together, uh, men and women, who were going to write and produce resources arguing for this view. And so our organization, CBMW, started uh, back in 1987. Its first major achievement was the publication of a book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, which came out in 1991, which is still sort of a, the touchstone of hmm. um, even of evangelical complementarian exegesis and theology. Um so that, that book is still out there. It's still, still a landmark, but at sometime after that, the organization, you know, formed a website, began doing conferences and providing all kinds of different resources, uh, like your people are familiar with now, if they're familiar at all with our organization. Uh, but that's where Danvers came from. That's where the CBMW came from. And, um, that's what we're going to be discussing here in the rest of the podcast. So just a, a brief summary here, we would say that complementarianism as an ism, you know, new with around 1987, 1988, but well, well, hang on, hang, hang on a second. Yeah. Let's be very clear. The theology, the theology within Danvers is not new. Well, that's where I was okay. going with compliment. So complementarianism as a theological position, as a, a that being named, you know, 1987, 1988, but complementarity, the thing that the theology behind what our organization stands for, you know, the, our founders, all they were trying to do is rearticulate what the church has always believed about men and women creating the image of God um, for specific roles in the home and the church. And, you know, I, I think, I think that's a good reminder for our listeners that, as we go through the Danvers statement, everything that, that is written in the Danvers statement is rooted in God's revelation in the scriptures. And what CBMW is trying to do is stand for the timeless truth of God's word of, of God's design and complementarity against the, the cultural pressures and forces that want us to revise what the church has always believed about these things. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It would be, you know, a severe misunderstanding if people were to come away thinking that, oh, this was a theological position that didn't exist before 1987. That's just not true. Uh, the, the whole point was to articulate what the church had always believed 
uh, but to put it in kind of a summary format and then give a label to the position before the 20th century, you didn't have um, these issues weren't as contested as they were by the time you get to the 20th century, especially in the West and especially with the rise of feminism with um you know expressive individualism that's a big part of it as well and the sexual revolution all these events were happening that made the the way that christians thought about men and women manhood and womanhood it made them have to articulate what they've always always believed in the face of these new errors and so that that's what the danvers statement is it's a complementarian is a new term for an ancient theological position And that's what we're going to be talking about uh, over the course of these forthcoming podcasts. Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.